Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS. Tune in or stream Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Rutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with This is Post Reports. I'm Madalika Sika, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, June 24th. Today, why Joe Biden is campaigning with an air of inevitability, the contest over who will become Britain's next prime minister, and love letters from a gay first lady. Former Vice President Joe Biden is running his 2020 presidential campaign as if he's the Democratic frontrunner. So far, he's leading in the polls. A large chunk of his argument for being elected is that he is inevitable, that he is the best to go up against Trump, that he is the strongest in the field. But national political reporter Matt Weiser says there's a downside. If he starts to fall in the polls as a result of any gaffe or any major moment in a debate or sort of the culmination of weeks of scrutiny, then I think it, it could sort of change the dynamic of the race. And there have been a few gaffes lately, including one where Biden says his working relationship with a segregationist senator was a model for political civility. But Biden hasn't explained himself much. He isn't holding a lot of events outside of fundraisers. And he's not a fixture on TV the way other candidates have been. He hasn't gone to many of the candidate forums that have been held. That shifted a little bit this past weekend in South Carolina, where he was at a couple of different events. Four more years of Donald Trump will permanently change the character of this country. We can't let that happen. We have to He didn't necessarily Donald share the stage that much with candidates to contrast, but, you know, one after the other would go up. And does the debate this week seem like it will be a different proposition for him compared to how we thought about it two weeks ago? I think in a way, yes. I, you know, I, I think that as soon as his campaign saw the debate card that he was facing, you know, who would be on the stage with him, they sort of knew that they were going to be the one with the target on their back. And I think they knew that all along, that as the front runner, he would come under the most scrutiny. But the past two weeks have been sort of a rough stretch for his campaign, initially switching on the Hyde Amendment, which prohibits federal funding of abortions, which Biden had supported for his entire career up until two weeks ago. Last week was sort of consumed with a discussion about Biden's ability to work with segregationist senators from the 1970s. And so I think that heading into the debate, you know, his record has faced two weeks of deep scrutiny and and that won't change, uh, you know, come Thursday night when he's on the stage in Miami. And he got in trouble uh, on his record while trying to make the case that I have the experience of working with a lot of different people over my political career. But it didn't come out that way. Tell us what he said. It, It didn't come out that way. There were sort of two issues with with what he said. The first is that he's saying, um, you know, some are criticizing him just merely for the fact of saying that he would work with somebody who believed or who said in the case of Senator Eastland, James Eastland from Mississippi, that black people are inferior, you know. And so Biden is saying, I, I can work with these people, you know, and we could be civil with one another. So some people criticized him on that. Biden also, he had this comment about how they didn't call me boy but they did call me son. 
And the use of the word boy also was offensive to, to some people as a derogatory way to refer to, to a black man. And Biden's campaign and, and Biden later sort of clarified that he, he wasn't using it and he wasn't intending to use it in that way. But it did feel that way to, to some. And Senator Booker, Cory Booker from New Jersey in particular, took great offense at that and, and sort of remarked in a CNN interview how he himself had been called boy and, and it was offensive. And he wanted Joe Biden to apologize, which uh, Biden has, so far has not. Apologize for what? Cory should apologize. There's not a racist bone in my body. I've been involved in civil rights my whole career, period, period, period. Now, the other interesting thing about this flap was that it was a comment he made in a fundraising event of which he has been doing many. He has allowed pool reporters to be in. But otherwise, we we haven't seen a lot of him talking to the public or the press for that matter. Yeah, his schedule day to day is 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 fairly sparse, particularly compared with the rest of the field. I mean, you have a field that's very active, uh, very busy. And uh, Biden many days only has uh, one or two fundraisers, and that's the only thing on his schedule or, or just meeting with advisors. You know, I mean, he's not having the same rapid pace of going to the early states, of having town hall meetings, of, you know, giving a back and forth with reporters that the other candidates have been doing. And and so as a result, you know, the comments that we typically get are, are through the fundraisers. Some credit to the campaign that they do allow a reporter in to the fundraisers to hear Joe Biden and to report back to the rest of us what he said. Some campaigns are not doing that. Some campaigns are not having these high dollar fundraisers altogether, too. You know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in particular have sworn these type of events off completely. But it is it has occupied a big chunk of Joe Biden's time to raise money. And we'd expect a, a pretty eye popping figure for his fundraising uh, as a result. But there's a trade-off for that. And there's a potentially a trade-off that will show itself in the debate if Bernie Sanders looks at him and says, you know, why are you spending all your time with these wealthy individuals and corporate interests and not with average people? Uh, so, I, I mean, I think he exposes himself and he should probably have a good answer for that. He's currently polling above everybody else and has done since he announced. Clearly, he has name recognition. What is the campaign's thinking about how they are running this campaign so far with a candidate who obviously has a lot of popular goodwill, but also has a history of being somewhat gaffe prone? There's a couple of elements. I mean, one is that the campaign would point to it being early, uh, you know, and there's a sense that they're they're right. I mean, the, the voting is not taking place for, for many months, you know, so they feel like they have time to ramp up the schedule. But secondly, is an element of of trying to prevent Biden, who does have a history of off the cuff remarks that get him in trouble. And I think for some voters, that's endearing, you know, that that he sort of just speaks whatever comes into his mind and you hear it in real time. For campaign aides, that's, you know, not quite endearing because <laughs> they have to recover from it and they have to clean up sometimes, as we've seen these past you know week or two. And so as a result, his schedule is is fairly, you know, limited so far, uh, you know, in terms of how how much exposure he has to at least off script moments that are recorded, you know, and can be distributed and opponents can seize on 
there's almost two different moments when he has these events. One is what you see from him on the stage as he delivers remarks or as he answers a few questions. The second is afterwards where he lingers and he works the rope line, the area where where supporters sort of come and they take selfies. Mr. Biden, sir, can I get you to sign that picture you took with my daughter? I sure can. And those are honestly moments where he's quite good. You know, he, he does have a connection with people and, you know, supporters who stay after to, to speak with him. Joe Biden's position at this stage in the race resembles somewhat, some might argue, the position that both Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton held in 2016. An aura of inevitability, perhaps, Is that a fair criticism? And if indeed the campaign is running that way, what are the potential pitfalls of that? Uh, Democrats have a long history of not being very favorable toward its frontrunners, where a frontrunner at this stage either is not the nominee or suffers a pretty big collapse before coming back. John Kerry was somewhat that way in 2004 where he sort of clawed back in in Iowa. And I think there's a, there's that aspect of, of Joe Biden where the debate is the first moment where he's kind of exposed in a way to questions from moderators, questions from his opponents. I think if Biden starts to struggle a little bit, you'll see potentially a different type of campaign than the one they've been running so far, which has been one of a front runner. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. Matt Weiser is a national political reporter for The Post. Last month, Theresa May announced her resignation as Britain's Prime Minister and the head of her political party. I do so with no ill will, but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. Now, the field of contenders to replace her as leader has been narrowed down to two men. One of them will lead the country and take on Brexit. To many people, I think this this may seem like a kind of a strange contest because it's not the British public. It's not the 66 million people who live here who decides who becomes the next prime minister. It's really a small group of people, um, sometimes referred to as the selectorate. My name is Carla Adam, and I'm a London correspondent for The Washington Post. The first of two phases has been completed in the race for the next Tory leader. And Carla says the stakes could not be higher. So there's two phases in the leadership contest. We're now uh, in the second phase of the contest. And in this phase, it's the paid up members of the Conservative Party who will make the final call. And we don't know for sure what the numbers are, but it's around about 160,000 people who will ultimately decide whether it's Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt. And I think it's worth while saying that that this group don't necessarily look like the electorate as a whole. I mean, they tend to be older, less diverse uh, than than the you know broader British public. They're also male, uh, more male, male yes. and uh, white, and pretty pro Brexit, right? They are, yes. So a lot of surveys show that they are much more willing to entertain a No Deal Brexit, for instance, than the public at large. So who is running for leadership of the Conservative Party? 
So there's two candidates on the final ballot. We have Boris Johnson, a larger-than-life character uh, with unruly blonde hair. Uh, he's a conservative politician who served two terms as mayor of London, and then he served as foreign secretary. He quit that role over Theresa May's handling of Brexit. And he, I think it's a big thing to say about him. Uh, there's many things to say about him. But he was a Brexiteer. He is a Brexiteer. He was the face of the Brexit campaign in 2016. He was one of the co-leaders of that campaign. His critics would say he's a, a clownish character who sometimes has a loose relationship with the truth and he's not a details man. And I think his supporters would say, you know, he's he's a lovable rogue and he has an ability to reach out to non-conservative voters. He can, he can inject optimism into to British politics. In the other corner, we have Jeremy Hunt. He is uh, sometimes dubbed the continuity candidate. Uh, the British papers here like to call him Theresa May in trousers. He's now the foreign secretary. He's an affable candidate. And I think his supporters would say, you know, he's the, he's the grown up between the two candidates. He's better with details. He's shown that he can win the backing of Remainers and Leavers in, in Westminster. Um, and also, you know, he's not Boris. Uh, you know, there's a segment here who are just ABB or anyone but Boris. And I think his critics might say, you know, he's, he's too nice, maybe too much of a gentleman to be Boris. And also, he didn't back Brexit back in the 2016 EU referendum. Right. So one of his challenges is he was a Remainer and now he has to convince people that he will see Brexit through. Exactly. So and he's kind of become this almost this born again Brexiteer. I would leave the European Union if uh, no deal was on the table and there was no prospect of a, a better deal that could get through Parliament. Um, I would do it with a heavy heart because of... But now he says, you know, if, if there was another uh, referendum that he would uh, vote for Brexit. But I think that, that that will be a challenge for him. The Tory party members, you know, they already saw Theresa May, who she voted remain in the EU referendum, and they sort of say, OK, well, look, look how well that went. So I think that's one of his, you know, that would be one of his challenges. Now, one of the interesting things about Boris Johnson, who tends to be the focus of a lot of coverage, is he has been a fixture in British politics for a very long time. And some talk of, uh, well, it's inevitable in his life that he would become prime minister and that this race is really more of a coronation than a competition. And the only opponent Boris needs to fear is Boris himself. So <laughs> he's had some issues of late, just a few days ago, in fact, regarding his personal life, which um, many have said, well, we shouldn't really be dealing with this. But Jeremy Hunt has called him uh, out on it. Could you tell us what happened? Yes, yes. Um, you make a good point there that, you know, he, he is sort of seen so far as being so far out ahead that this is really his race to lose. And there is a sort of cliche here that the only person who can beat Boris is Boris. And I think the big drama right now in the race is, you know, sort of will will Boris sort of fumble it somehow? Um, so just a few hours after he topped the ballot on, on Thursday night to be one of the, the final two to go into the second phase of the race. There was this sort of alleged altercation at his girlfriend's uh, apartment and he's as he's, he's in the middle of divorcing his second wife, and so he's living with, with his girlfriend in South London. It appeared all over the British papers, and Johnson was asked about it at the very first uh, hustings in the second phase of the contest. He was asked about it repeatedly on Saturday, and he repeatedly dodged the question. 
You asked about my character, actually. I'm not avoiding your question. You asked a very direct question about my character. And what I'm telling you... Well, let me put it another way. I'm telling you is that when it comes to delivering on my promises... Does a person's private life have any bearing on their ability to do the job as Prime Minister? And when you look at my determination to deliver for people who vote for me, when I say I will do X, I generally speaking deliver X. Now, let's give Jeremy Hunt his due. He's a businessman, a former businessman. And I think one of the cases he's trying to make is that you need that steady, experienced hand who can bring a sober attitude to making Brexit happen. What's his case for and how's he doing? Yeah, so he's saying that he's he's the man with the experience. He has been a cabinet minister uh, for a lot longer than Johnson. He was, again, he was a health secretary, and that's a hard gig that he had. And then also as foreign secretary, he says, hey, look, you know, I've been, as foreign secretary, I've been able to make close relationships with, with some leaders in Europe, and that makes me an ideal candidate that I can sort of negotiate, renegotiate this Brexit deal with people whom I already have a relationship with. So that's been his pitch, you know, that he is a, a businessman, but also someone who has uh, more extensive experience at the top level of government, and he has relationships uh, in the EU that, you know, will help him to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. So regardless who wins this leadership contest, the new prime minister will have the same makeup in parliament. And Theresa May did not have much success in getting a Brexit deal through that parliament. Would there be anything different for whoever becomes the new prime minister? Yeah, I think you're exactly right that whoever becomes the new prime minister will inherit the same challenges that Theresa May had. So, And she you know, famously tried to get through a deal that she negotiated with the EU three times and three times she failed. And the new prime minister will face the same parliamentary arithmetic uh, and the same challenges of pushing whatever deal they renegotiate or tweak with the EU. You know, they still face a battle with the numbers. There is this worry from the Conservative Party that if they don't deliver Brexit, then it could be sort of, they could be in deep trouble um, with the electorate. And you see, you know, sort of Johnson talking in sort of existential terms, you know, that if we don't deliver Brexit, then this could be, you know, very bad news for our party. Carla Adam is the London correspondent for The Washington Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Chasing the Moon on PBS, the epic story of the moon landing. This is the most audacious undertaking that man has ever attempted. It's as if you were there when it happened. I understood what it meant to smell fear. Experience the making of history. The computer was overloading. It was touch and go. Like you never have before. Everybody felt they had a piece of it, and they did. Chasing the Moon on American Experience. Premieres Monday, July 8th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. And now, one more thing. Rose Cleveland was actually Grover Cleveland's sister. He was unmarried when he became president in 1885. And so she served as first lady until he married the next year. That's Gillian Brockell. And I'm the Retropolis reporter for The Washington Post. Retropolis is the history section of The Post. 
Recently, Gillian spoke with a historian who came across letters Rose Cleveland sent after her time in the White House to a woman named Evangeline Simpson Whipple. She talks about long, rapturous embraces that, quote, carry us both in one to the summit of joy, the end of search, the goal of love. I mean, we know what she's talking about there. (laughs) Now, at the time, women did carry on what were called romantic friendships, which were intellectually and emotionally intimate, although not necessarily sexually intimate or, or physical relationships. However, in these letters, there's explicit content, shall we say, that make it very clear that they had a physical and sexual relationship. This really shows that women loving women and men loving men have existed through all of human history. We may not always have the evidence for it or the documentation for it, but they have always existed. And that's why these letters are so important, not just that they exist, but that they span such a long period of time. Evangeline's family accepted the couple's 30-year relationship. There's no mention of how President Grover Cleveland felt about it. You know, they were wealthy, they were white, they didn't have to be married because they had their own money. These women were able to live relatively openly or carve out a space for themselves that other people who may have been in love or had same-sex feelings could not have done. Rose Cleveland lived with Evangeline in Italy and even dedicated a book to her on Tuscany, where the two were buried next to each other. Gillian Burkell writes for Retropolis, the Post's history section. That's it for today's episode. If you like listening to Post Reports and want to know how to support the work that we do here, please consider subscribing to The Washington Post. We're offering Post Reports listeners a special discount on a digital subscription. Unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. I'm Madalika Sika. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.